please turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. I will confess that I never feel uncomfortable up here when I'm pointing you toward the word of God and toward God and toward worship, but I feel uh, I was very uncomfortable talking about me. Nevertheless, Mike, thank you. I'm just glad that doesn't happen very often. (sighs) Okay. (laughs) My family's glad too. That's the last dissertation we'll do for a while. I read a story in Time Magazine back in January 2008, just a couple years ago. It began like this. When Angie Schmidt's seven-year marriage ended, there wasn't much to laugh about. But what she craved was a little levity. There was nothing out there that really made people laugh at themselves and laugh at breakups, she says. I thought, wouldn't it be great to create a business that does this? Business for products aimed at the newly divorced from greeting cards and post-breakup getaway packages to custom-made cakes and joke gifts like wedding ring coffins is booming. New Orleans resident Renee Savant bought a hearse, thinking she would rent it out for over-the-hill birthday celebrations, but since she began her service last October, the hottest demand has come from clients who want to ride around as they and their friends celebrate the death of their marriages. I would never in a million years have thought the fad would be divorce parties, says Savant. We live in a culture that trivializes marriage and consequently trivializes divorce. But God takes marriage extremely seriously because it was one of the first and greatest gifts that he gave to us. Marriage is, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful gift. It doesn't always work in this broken and fallen world, and we're going to talk about that this morning. And I recognize this is an extremely sensitive subject. There probably is not a family sitting here that has not been touched by divorce. If not directly, just outside of the direct boundaries of your marriage, maybe a a brother or a sister, another family member. And as I talk about divorce this morning, I I want to acknowledge I, I can't address every single specific issue that happens in every single marriage that struggles. And in fact, the Bible doesn't. The Bible lays out principles for us, and that's what we're going to try to address this morning. I also want to acknowledge that I'm not stating this is the official position on divorce and remarriage for Grace Bible Church because we don't have an official position stated in writing. There, there is disagreement on this topic among godly people so I'm not speaking for our elders, I'm not speaking for the other pastors, I'm telling you where, where I believe the Bible teaches. After years of study and after years of research and experience, uh, this is what, these are the conclusions that I have reached. And I'm going to try to teach what I believe the Bible says about divorce and remarriage, specifically what Jesus teaches about divorce and remarriage. Now parents, if you have uh, grade school kids sitting with you, I'm going to tell you I'm, I'm not going to be graphic this morning, but I am going to use a few terms that you may get home and your kids have never heard these terms before and they may say, mom, dad, what does that mean? So if that makes you a little bit nervous, you you won't hurt my feelings. You can go out, you can listen to the podcast later. I'm I'm promising you, I won't be graphic, but we will use some terms that your kids may not know yet. The terms that I'm I'm using are terms that we have uh, generally, generically defined with our kids who are five and eight, Um, not in graphic terms or anything specific, but When you get into a topic like this, you've got to define some terms, okay? So all of those uh, caveats being laid, and I probably, knowing we would have had this celebration, would have picked a different topic for this morning. Nevertheless, let's talk about divorce and remarriage. All right. Let's start in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus. 
testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now, as we get into the context of Matthew chapter 19, not surprisingly, the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. They ask him a question in order to test them. They want to test Jesus, and they're testing him on a variety of fronts. One of the tests is, given the fact that John the Baptist has just condemned Herod, Antipas, for his affair with another woman and then divorcing his wife and marrying this woman, and as a result, John was put into prison and later beheaded. So Herod is not necessarily going to be happy about what they think Jesus might say. And they're hoping that maybe they can get Jesus out of the way if he answers incorrectly and they spread it around what Jesus actually teaches. That's one of the ways they're trying to entrap him. They're also trying to entrap him because they're sucking him into this debate that was currently raging between two rabbinical schools, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. And what they were debating was the meaning of a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1 that says this, when a man takes a wife and marries her, And it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. Now the debate was over, what is the meaning of this phrase, some indecency? What does that mean? Well, Shammai said this, an indecent matter means divorce for adultery only. That's what an indecency is. His rival, Hillel, taught this. Indecency or another matter is how it should be translated. So, divorce for any matter whatsoever. So, Hillel and all those who followed him taught that you could get divorced for adultery or any other matter. So, specifically, they said, if your wife burns the dinner, (laughs) you don't like that, you can divorce her. If you find a woman that you think is better looking, you can divorce her because it's any matter that you deem as appropriate for you to get rid of your wife. You just need to write her a certificate of divorce. So the debate is raging between these two schools of thought. And which do you think was the more popular school of thought? (laughs) Yeah, you're right. Hillel. Hillel. And by the time that uh, Paul was writing and later, basically the the thinking of Shammai and his followers was, was gone. Hillel won the day. Okay. Indecency means indecency or any other matter. So they're trying to pull Jesus into this debate. And the question is, in this debate, Jesus, is Hillel right that a man can divorce his wife for any matter at all? Where are you going to land, Jesus? What are you going to say? Now, not surprisingly, Jesus doesn't answer their question. What he does is he turns the discussion a totally different direction. Look with me in verse 4. Jesus answered and he said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Notice, Jesus does not answer their question. Instead, what he does is he takes them all the way back to the book of Genesis. And he quotes first from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Haven't you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? In other words, marriage is grounded in the act of creation. 
God created them male and female. That is, God created them different but complementary. God made them for one another. Marriage is part of the creative act of God. Takes them to Genesis 1, verse 27. Then he moves on, and he takes them to Genesis 2, verse 4. And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And one flesh pertains both to physical union, but also emotional and spiritual and psychological. It is both physical and mystical. The two shall become one flesh. In other words, God created man, put man to sleep, and he created woman, and then he created marriage. Marriage is an act of creation. The two will become one flesh. Marriage is an act of creation by God. Verse 6, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. And it was God's intention that this unique union between man and woman would reflect the way that God loves mankind and God's faithfulness toward mankind. And it would be a reflection of Jesus Christ's love for the church, we will learn later from Ephesians chapter 5. In other words, marriage really had this transcendent purpose that was beyond a, a human contract or a human agreement. In other words, the state of Texas may recognize that you are married, but really marriage is in the sight of God. So he says, they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Because ultimately marriage is something that God created, that God ordained, and that God is in the fact mystically joining together. Marriage is an act of creation of God. Therefore, what God has joined together, he says, let no man separate. Who are we to break what God has joined? Jesus is totally redirecting their attention. What God has joined together, literally, let no man cut. Let no man uh, cut or dissolve because if you break something like this, there will be consequences. Okay, and all of you who have been touched by a divorce, whether directly in your, in your own marriage, if you have been divorced or a close friend or family member, you know you can't make this separation without consequences. Okay, even under what we might label as the best of circumstances, even when a husband and wife try to be civil in the dissolution of their marriage, there, there are consequences. There must be. There have to be. Let me illustrate this for you. Imagine that uh, marriage is the joining together of two people, pink and blue, okay? And what happens as these two come together is they begin to share experiences. And imagine that each experience is like a a layer of glue that's placed on here. There's dating. There's all those shared experiences and those fun memories. And then there's engagement and a shared engagement story. And then honeymoon and the shared story of the honeymoon, and then shared family members, and shared friends, and shared vacation, and then shared children, and shared job changes, and a new house. And so there's layer after layer of glue that binds these two together. And then there's a decision to separate the two, and you decide uh, that you're going to do it very carefully and very civilly, and you're not going to create any harm to anyone around, and so you carefully try to remove the two, and what happens? No matter how careful you are, there's pink on blue and blue on pink, 
and the paper is torn and you try to protect the children and you try to protect your own heart and you do all that you can and this is what you have. There are wounds. You can't pull these two apart without consequence. What God has joined together should not be separated. And if it is, and I understand sometimes in a broken, fallen world it will happen, there will be wounds. One of my close, close friends, his parents were divorced at two, and some of the popular thinking is, well, if if parents get divorced really young, well, then the kids don't really know and they don't feel it, they don't understand, but his parents were divorced at two, and he's now 40, and he's still feeling it. He still feels it. And others say, well, you know, we got divorced, we waited till the kids got out of the house and they were in college. You know what? (laughs) Spent a lot of years working with college students and they'd walk in and their whole world, their whole history had just been rewritten because mom and dad pulled apart in college. it, It doesn't matter when it happens. It's a tearing. It's a disruption. It's a breaking. It's a wounding. It happens. Can we heal and can we move on? Absolutely. My friend whose parents were divorced at two, he is, he's a whole person and he's a godly person. He walks with the Lord. He serves the Lord. He's married. He's got a great marriage. He's a good father. Hey, we, we can heal, but we shouldn't be foolish enough to say to ourselves that there won't be a wound, that there won't be a scar. There will. I'll read to you a quote here. I think I put it on, on the slide. Yeah, there it is. From Rebecca O'Neill. She wrote a book called Experiments in Living the Fatherless Family. She said, For the best part of 30 years, we have been conducting a vast experiment with a family, and now the results are in. The decline of the two parent married couple family has resulted in poverty, ill health, educational failure, unhappiness, antisocial behavior, isolation, and social exclusion for thousands of women, men, and children. And uh, if you read even secular sources, not Christian sources, they all agree. Marriage, marriage wounds. Marriage, there are consequences. Can we heal and become whole people and have healthy relationships? Absolutely. But we shouldn't fool ourselves. This is the most important human bond. It is the foundation for society. It is the foundation for an entire culture. And when we tear it apart, we're going to do damage. Okay? And so what Jesus is doing is he's redirecting their attention. Okay? And he's trying to refocus them The issue uh, is not, what are legitimate grounds for divorce? The issue is this, what can I do to help my marriage last for a lifetime? Because it's so important. Why is it so important to stay married? Because God's marriage is a gift to us. And because marriage can be a a reflection of the very way that God loves us. And so Jesus is trying to redirect their attention. And what we're going to do, since this, I believe, is, this is the heart of the matter and this is absolutely so critical, is next week we're going to talk about this issue. Hey, what, are the things, what are the things that we can do to make sure that our marriages go the distance? Okay, what can we do? We'll talk about that next week because I want to have a lot of time to talk about that. Let me just say that the Pharisees weren't satisfied with Jesus' redirect. Okay? They wanted an answer to their question. So if you look back in chapter 19, verse 7, it says, They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And they pressed Jesus for an answer. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? They're quoting again Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. This was the center of their debate. 
Jesus answer our question. Because we're reading the law and they're again trying to trap him. They're trying to put Jesus against Moses. Right? They've got all kinds of schemes to trip Jesus up. Jesus, you're saying this, but Moses is saying this. Are you disagreeing with Moses? And so Jesus goes ahead and he answers their question. He goes directly into this debate. With me, chapter 19 and verse 8. Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus effectively ends the debate. Let's read that again. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus' first point is this. You Pharisees missed the point. <laughs> okay? You missed Moses' point. Divorce is permitted, not commanded. Okay, notice what they say. Verse 7. Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce. Okay, they, they had an assumption, all of them, that if it was immorality or if it was any other matter, that divorce was required. So specifically, uh, in the law, if a wife committed adultery, the adultery effectively ended the marriage It was a foregone conclusion. It was ended. The certificate just made it official. That's it. That's all the certificate did. So, for example, when Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant, what does he say to himself? He says, how can I put her away or how can I release her or divorce her quietly so as not to embarrass her? Because Joseph is a righteous man. That is, Joseph is a man who longed to follow the law. And it was an assumption, it was a foregone conclusion that if your wife commits adultery, you set her aside. So remember, uh, Joseph and Mary were, in the eyes of the law, married because they were betrothed. They hadn't had their ceremony yet. They hadn't come together physically. There wasn't physical union. But they were betrothed, so they were married. He finds out that she's pregnant. And his only decision is, how can I do it quietly? Not, should I do it or should I not do it? And Jesus is saying here, no, divorce is not mandatory. A divorce is never mandatory. Even in the case of adultery, you don't have to get a divorce. Moses permitted it because of your hardness of heart. In other words, you're not going to want to obey the spirit of the law. And so Moses permitted it. Also, you live in a fallen world where these things break and try as you might. Sometimes you can't put them back together. And so Moses permitted it. Notice also, it says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it has not been this way. Okay? The certificate of divorce... And this is really, really important to understand. The certificate of divorce was uh, a creation of God. This concept really didn't exist in the rest of the ancient Near East. The certificate of divorce was a protection for the woman. Uh, In most of the ancient Near East, uh, a husband could just uh, send his wife away, which was the terminology for divorce. He just, he sent her away. 
And then years later, if he wanted to, he could go back and he could reclaim her. So he may have sent her away, and for her to be able to provide for herself, the only thing that she could do would be to get remarried. There weren't all these job options. You know, let me go to vocational training and change careers. And I mean, it just didn't exist. How could she provide for herself financially? Well, it had to be through family. So she would go away, she would get remarried, and the previous husband would come and he'd reclaim her and he'd take her and he might even take subsequent children and any wealth she had produced and he'd take her back to himself. So the certificate of divorce was created to protect the woman so the man couldn't go back and get her again and totally destroy her life. That was the point of the certificate of divorce. So the certificate of divorce gave her the right to remarry so that she would have financial provision for herself. Okay? That's the point of the certificate. So notice again, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, that is to give this certificate of divorce, but from the beginning, it has not been this way. From the beginning, what's he talking about? Genesis, okay? In the beginning, he's saying, from the beginning, it hasn't been this way. Adam and Eve never discussed divorce, right? (laughs) Right? They never discussed divorce. Eve could honestly say to Adam, I love you more than any man on the face of the earth. (laughs) And Adam could likewise say to Eve, I love you more than any woman on the face of the earth. You're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. They never talked about it. It wasn't contemplated. And Jesus is saying from the beginning, God's intention was that marriage would be permanent. The divorce would not be an option. So Jesus makes this pronouncement. Hillel is wrong. Divorce is for porneia or immorality, not for any matter. Not because she burns your breakfast. Not because you find someone who's better looking. But for porneia. Now, giving you your warning, parents, okay? Let me define the term. And again, not graphically, but uh, this is what the word means. Porneia means physical acts of extramarital sexual immorality, such as adultery, incest, prostitution, and homosexuality, etc. Okay? Physical acts of sexual immorality that the law said no to, that the law defined as uh, porneia. Okay? Uh, This definition did not include what we popularly term Uh, an emotional affair. It didn't include that. It didn't include that. Now, from my experience, when such a relationship exists outside, there's almost always something physical that happens with it or eventually happens with it. But technically speaking, this term, porneia, includes just the physical acts that were extramarital outside of the realm of the marriage. So, does that mean that um, divorce is biblically legitimate only in the case of porneia or uh, including adultery? Uh, I would argue no. Okay? I think that there, are, uh, there is at least one other reason that was biblically legitimate, and Jesus doesn't bring it up here because no one debated it. Okay? Hang with me for a second. Okay? So when Jesus says here, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another commits adultery. That is, he divorces his wife, she hasn't committed adultery, then he goes on and he marries someone else, he has committed adultery. I don't think Jesus is saying that immorality is the only biblically acceptable reason for divorce, and he's not addressing the other issues because everyone agreed upon them. 
Okay, specifically in the law, there were other provisions that were given to protect the vulnerable. Specifically to protect the woman. Okay, let me show you where this comes from. Exodus chapter 21. Now, I've synthesized this for you if you want to go back and read the whole section. Uh, chapter 21, verses 7 through 11, reads like this. If a man sells his daughter as a female slave, and later she becomes the master's wife, he, uh, the terminology is he, he takes her for himself. That is, he buys a female slave, but then he decides she's not going to remain a slave. She's going to become a wife. If her owner takes to himself another woman, he may not reduce the slave's, slave wife, that first wife's, food, clothing, or conjugal rights. If he will do, not do these three things for her, then she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. In other words, she is free to leave. She can receive her certificate of divorce. If he doesn't provide for her food, clothing, and conjugal rights. In other words, if he neglects her. And all of the, the rabbis who understood the law taught this. They argued from the lesser to the greater. If a woman who was a slave who became a wife had these rights, how much more so a woman who was free who became a wife would have these rights? So it was generally agreed upon that another legitimate grounds for divorce was life-threatening neglect or behavior. Okay? If he will not provide her with food and clothing, what other means does she have in that culture? except for that to be provided through the family, through marriage. That is how it is provided for her. So if she is neglected to the point of her life being threatened, then she is free to go out. That is, she is free to go out and find a man who will provide for her physical and financial needs. Now, let me try and put this in contemporary culture and and illustrate it for you. Imagine that um, a woman is married to a man and he's working, but because the salary that he's making... They can't really make ends meet, and so she has to go out and work as well. But she doesn't want to work. Does she have biblical grounds to divorce him? No, she does not. That is not neglect that is life-threatening. They may need financial counseling to bring their obligations down so that she can stay home. Or it may be that given where their life is right now, they both do have to work in this culture, maybe. But that, that doesn't qualify for what he's talking about here. Let me give you another illustration. Uh, and again, remember, I can't address every single mitigating circumstance uh, with these illustrations. But imagine that a woman is married to a man and he refuses to work. And so, according to the biblical pattern of confrontation, godly men come and they confront him and they say, Get your lazy self out of that lazy boy and TV and get a job. Because he who does not provide for his own is worse than an unbeliever. You are shaming the name of Christ. You're shaming your family. Go get a job. And they confront him and they challenge him. And he is absolutely unrepentant. And he stays in his lazy boy. And from his lazy boy, using his internet computer, he takes out the family credit card and he begins charging everything and he's running up debt like crazy. And the wife is working all that she can. She takes on a second job to pay all their bills, but she's falling behind and they can't pay their mortgage and they can't pay their utility bills. And pretty soon it's hard even to make ends meet to provide food for the children. And he's confronted again and he's absolutely unrepentant and he will not work. Does she have biblical grounds for for divorce? Maybe. Okay, maybe. Especially in this current culture where there is no financial protection for a spouse from the debt obligations that the other spouse takes on, it, it might be, okay? 
I will tell you though, if somebody comes to me like that, I, I, don't, I don't immediately say, get a divorce, okay? I go through these, the biblical model of confrontation. Uh, there may have to be separations, some separating of the bills. There may have to be a variety of things because remember, divorce is still never mandatory. But the provisions were made in the law to protect the vulnerable, okay? To protect specifically the woman who couldn't go out and provide for herself by a variety of means. It had to happen through the family, through the home. Now, you'll notice here in this uh, passage, if a man sells his daughter as a female slave, later she becomes the master's wife. If her owner takes to himself another woman, he may not reduce the slave wife's food, clothing, or conjugal rights, okay? Now, in my opinion, what the Lord through Moses is talking about here is not the wife's physical pleasure in the family and through that husband-wife relationship. What he's talking about is her ability to provide for herself again. Because if he will not provide her with conjugal rights, she can't get pregnant, she can't raise up children who in her old age will provide for her in place of a neglectful husband. Okay, so that I think, is, I think that's the whole essence of this provision in the law is so that the vulnerable can provide for themselves because God always cares for the orphan and the widow and the vulnerable in the land, the alien and the stranger. God makes provision for them. So I think that is what is going on here in this second provision, life-threatening neglect or behavior. Now, as an aside, I'm frequently asked, well, what about abuse in the home? What about physical abuse? Physical abuse is never addressed in marriage law in the Old Testament. And there's a reason for that, because physical abuse is criminal. (laughs) It's not addressed under marriage law because it's criminal. A man can't strike another man that he's absolutely unrelated to, much less wife and children. And it goes both ways. It goes both ways. So physical abuse and life-threatening abuse is not even addressed in marriage law. Because it's, it's a crime. Okay? So it might be that if, if a husband or a wife's life or children's lives are threatened or their health is threatened, that there has to be a divorce. But that's not addressed specifically in marriage law. Because it's a different category. It doesn't have to be addressed in marriage law because it's a crime. Even our society, our culture, recognizes it as a crime. Okay? Now, this principle of life-threatening neglect or behavior, I think, is what Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her or send her away. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. I think he is applying the Old Testament principle to a a Gentile audience in Corinth where there were no certificates of divorce. Divorce was enacted when one party left. Abandonment, in other words, which was extreme neglect. That party left. But as he says here, the brother or the sister who has an unbelieving spouse should not leave just because that spouse is unbelieving. You stay. Because, he says, you bring sanctification or holiness. You expose the husband and the children to God by staying in the marriage. And there is ultimately something more important than our day-to-day happiness in the context of marriage, and it's the glory of God. And I understand a a lot of you, even probably this very moment, 
are hurting and are struggling, or you have been in the past, and all that you want is relief. But I'm telling you, there is something that is greater and is transcendent. And if you are willing to be patient and wait and pray, sometimes, not always, but sometimes, God can bring miraculous healing into your home. From a biblical perspective, though, these are the um, legitimate biblical grounds for divorce, uh, as I see them. Now, let let me draw a few conclusions for you. I said, I know I haven't addressed every single issue, but a few conclusions first. Uh, Marriage is meant to be monogamous. God created for Adam Eve, not Eve and Jenny and Sally and Sandy. And he he, he made Eve, right? Okay, so it was meant to be monogamous in spite of a lot of biblical history that you see to the contrary. If you'll notice that most of the time when it was, there was a polygamous relationship, it didn't work well. It didn't work well, okay? Because it was meant to be husband and wife. And it's only husband and wife in which you can have one flesh. One flesh. Marriage is, by definition, heterosexual. This is the definition of it. Um, Again, the the one flesh union, uh, there are a lot of aspects of marriage that simply cannot be fulfilled, male and male or female and female. And that's not to say that we don't love our friends and family members who uh, are living a, a homosexual lifestyle. We love them. We pray for them. We share Christ with them. Do all that we can, but we never affirm for them that what they have is, by definition, marriage. It is not. And it doesn't matter to me what the state eventually says. The very definition of marriage, because it was created by God, is male and female. Okay? That's the definition of it. Marriage is meant to be lifelong. From the beginning, that's what God intended, and Adam and Eve didn't talk about any other way. Divorce and remarriage are allowed only for narrowly defined grounds. Porneia, extreme neglect, abandonment. Fifth, divorce is never mandatory. It's never mandatory. This is really hard, I know, for folks here, but I promise you I have seen, uh, even when there have been uh, affairs, I have seen marriages healed. Many times, many times I have seen this happen. People can grow and they can change. Most of the time, we're not nearly patient enough to wait on these things. Okay, it's never mandatory. It is permissible. Okay? So I never tell someone, get a divorce. I will tell them, this is what I understand, the biblically permissible grounds. Now, before God, this is your decision. And this has enormous consequences for you and your family member. This has to be your decision. Now, here are the scriptures. You need to search it out and make a decision for yourself. Because I, don't, I won't live with it day to day, but you will live with this day to day, whether you stay in or whether you get out. So divorce is never mandatory. Second, reconciliation is always preferable if possible. And I acknowledge that in a broken and fallen world, it isn't always possible. I understand that. I understand that's true. Um, if you're struggling this morning, if your marriage is, is struggling, maybe you haven't talked about divorce or anything like that, but if you're just struggling, get help right now. Uh, so many times what happens is people come in to the pastor's offices and it, it, they have, they have are, they're past the point of no return. They have absolutely no willingness or desire to try in their marriages any longer. So if you're, even if you're just wrestling, struggling, there are issues you want to talk about, come in and one of the pastors will counsel with you or we will recommend another couple in the church. We have many really fine counselors who um, 
go to this church. I have some friends who have a wonderful marriage, and about every two or three years, they go into one of their counselor friends, and they have what they call a marriage tune-up. It's not because they have anything particular that's going wrong, but they want to address some areas of conflict and maybe some patterns and how can we adjust and deal with these things to keep ourselves healthy. So if you're wrestling or struggling at all, man, just be humble and honest and let's, let's get out there, let's deal with it. That's what the body of Christ is for. Okay? So even if you're struggling, if you are contemplating divorce this morning, let me encourage you just to move really, really slowly. Okay, move really slowly. Because you cannot foresee all the consequences for that decision. It may be that that is where God moves you and leads you, but be really, really cautious about that. Now, a couple words of exhortation here. If you've already been divorced, if you were divorced with biblical grounds, then uh, in my understanding of the word, you are free to remarry a godly spouse. Not just anyone, but as Paul says, you're free to remarry in the Lord. And I would say, a godly spouse. And do not be in a hurry. And when someone gets divorced, I say to them, do not absolutely go out on any single date for at least a year, if not longer. Because you need to heal. And you need to think clearly and wisely. And you need to get godly counsel. Okay? I believe that you are free, if it's biblical grounds, to remarry a godly person. Marry in the Lord. Uh, you're also free to reconcile, if that's possible. If that other spouse has not married, you are free to do that. Uh, Right after a divorce, it's probably nearly impossible to contemplate that, but you'd be amazed. You'd be amazed. I had a couple come in to me uh, years ago. They had, uh, uh, the husband had had uh, an affair, and they'd gotten divorced. They had been divorced for three years. They had made a couple attempts to reconcile. Three years later, finally, they sat there in front of me and they said, uh, will you do our wedding because we're afraid that our pastor won't remarry us? And I said, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> of course. How about now? Sure. <laughs> yeah, of course I'll do that. But I said, first, I need to ask you, the wife, a question. Do you trust him? And if so, how? And she said, well, I can't really outline the process for you, but God healed my heart and I trust him more now than I ever trusted him before because he's a different man. He's a different man. God changed him and God healed and God restored the trust. I I swear, I've seen it happen. God can do these miracles. So you can. You know, if, if you're willing to and if willing to wait. Now, it doesn't always happen. Sometimes that person does not change at all and you watch and you wait and it never happens. But you are free to do so. If you've been divorced without biblical grounds or you caused the divorce, confess to those you've hurt. It doesn't matter to me how long ago it was. And I also recognize that no divorce is caused by one person. There are always, you know, there, there are two people in every marriage. I understand that. So what I'm saying is if you cause the divorce, just own your part. Just own your part and don't... Speak against the other person, but go to that person and confess your part. Go to the children, confess your part, just your part. Don't talk about anybody else's part, just yours. Those words are so healing. Even if you got a divorce and now your children are adults and you go to them and say, I know all these rumors have always swirled around and you've always had these questions. Let me tell you, this is what I did. And you confess and you ask forgiveness. You can be an agent of healing. Hey, do that. Confess. If you've not remarried, 
and your spouse is not remarried, pursue reconciliation if it's possible. If you've remarried, commit to a lifelong marriage, and next week we're going to talk about that. How do we build it? How do we make that happen? Can't guarantee it, but insofar as it depends upon us, how do we build into our marriage so that it goes the distance? Now, finally, for everyone, it's to live in God's grace and his power. No matter what you have done or no matter what has been done to you, here we are today. And because God has given you this day, it is proof to you that he wants to show you his absolutely unconditional love and bring healing into your life. Live in God's grace and his power. If there's something that you need to confess to him, confess and be free. That's why Jesus died. Take advantage of that. That's why Jesus died. I'll leave you with one scripture. Book of Jeremiah. Ah, Lord God. Behold, you made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I recognize there may be even more questions even after we've looked at your word, just because there's so many specifics and circumstances and there's unfortunately so much hurt um, that I'm sure has been experienced even in this room, I pray, Lord, that you would bring your supernatural healing. I pray, Father, that you would bring wisdom and truth into all of our relationships. And I pray, Father, that we would know uh, the freedom that we can experience by walking in truth, walking in grace, and walking in forgiveness. Father, I pray for this congregation that we would have... uh, strong and vibrant and healthy marriages. I pray that we would be people who love and forgive. I pray, Father, that we would display uh, the very character of Christ. Father, bless your people. In Christ's name, amen. God's blessings on you. We'll see you next week.